0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando.
1: Tonight's sermon text comes from the first chapter of Mark, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have, a, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word.
0: Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time, and we were reminded this week in City Bible Reading that we only have one teacher, and that is you, and we only have one instructor, and that is you, and we only have one hope, and that is you. And we ask that you would come in this time and, and give us eyes to see and, and hearts to love. And minds to understand this text. Um, Lord Jesus, we again thank you for all that you have done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. We're starting a, a new series um, that will take us probably a year to complete. And um, this will be our regular habit at City Church to just walk through books of the Bible. Um, we, uh, we went through Colossians together um, early on in our story, and then we took about a seven week break to have a few guest speakers and have uh, a short but all too long new members uh, series. And uh, so we're going to go through the gospel of Mark. And the reason we're going to go through the gospel of Mark is because uh, we went through uh, Colossians, which is a story about a church plant living out of the gospel and living in the kingdom. And uh, so I wanted to take one step back from that church plant uh, in 60 AD and go a step back and look at, at the gospel The story of the gospel—it's found in uh, the book of Mark. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, My guess is, although I don't know what I'm going to do next week, let alone a year from now, my guess is that we'll go to an Old Testament book next and look at the Old Testament as as it speaks forth and forward towards Christ and anticipates Christ's coming and the good news of His kingdom and the fulfillment that He is of all things found in the Old Testament. So that'll sort of be our habit. We'll walk through a letter to a church. We'll remind ourselves of the gospel story, and we'll go to a prophecy. Uh, or a book of the Old Testament that points forward to our great king. So, why did I pick Mark out of all of the Gospels uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why did I pick Mark? And the main reason I picked it is because um, it, it's, it's the first Gospel to be written. Uh, for about 20 or 25 years after Jesus' death, um, there were no books written about Jesus' life. And the main reason for that is because there were eyewitnesses to Jesus and his ministry, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection. And uh, so, for about 15 or 20 years, there's really no reason to write down in an oral cu- culture, in a verbal culture, there's really no reason to write down who Jesus was because thousands of people encountered him in his life and in his death. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, at least 500 encountered him in his resurrection. And so, if you're going to say something silly like, you know, Jesus would occasionally get into a phone booth and He would dial up some numbers and he would go to another phone, both on the other side of Galilee. Then the eyewitnesses would say, no, that's crazy. That did not happen. I was here. And so the church was protected from heresy and the church was protected from Jesus's story being adulterated by eyewitnesses. But God began to prompt four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he prompted them to begin to collect the stories and the data of Jesus's life and to write them down so that we, 2,000 years later, could have the good news of Jesus as the word of God. So I picked Mark because it's the first. Mark um, is also the one I picked because it's the shortest. Um, It's 15 and a half chapters. If we were gonna dig through Matthew, it'd be 28 chapters. And and I picked it because it's the shortest. And the reason it's the shortest is because Mark doesn't really spend a whole lot of time teaching about Jesus like the other gospel writers do. And he doesn't honestly spend a whole lot of time giving us teaching from Jesus. It's by and large the the activities of Christ's life, what he said, what he did, where he went, and how he moved. For example, you know, Luke's gospel starts out the same way Matthew's gospel does with a rather long genealogy. Luke goes all the way back to Adam and tells the story of the story before Jesus. And uh, we first encounter Jesus and John the Baptist in Luke when they're in their mother's wombs and they're jumping for joy to be in one another's presence, these two cousins, Jesus and John the Baptist. And uh, the way John starts his gospel is all the way back at creation. In the beginning, he starts it very theologically, very philosophically, and works his way into the King, Jesus. But Mark just gets right into it in our text. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 40, and then all of a sudden, John the Baptist, as a grown man, appears in the wilderness, and here we go. So that's the reason I picked Mark. It's the first, it's the shortest, And it's also very emotional. I love it because it's so urgent. The word immediate is gonna be found throughout. Uh, The word appearing, things happening so fast, very little segue, very little transition. Mark is just flying through the events of Jesus's life. And uh, we do know uh, from the Bible and from church history that Mark uh, ran away from the faith when things began to get really hard when he was accompanying Paul in one of his missionary journeys. And Paul sent him home. And we know that he spent years being discipled by Peter the one who ran away from Jesus and was brought back in by the grace of God. And so we have in this story a a very emotional gospel because it is based on Peter and his recollections of Jesus. And so it's from one betrayer who's been forgiven through another betrayer who's been forgiven to a bunch of betrayers that might be forgiven. So that's why we're going through the book of Mark. So let's pick up in chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. When we hear this word gospel, we tend to think of it in the same way that I've been using it for a couple minutes. We tend to think of it as one of those first four books in the New Testament, the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ, the beginning of Mark's account of Jesus Christ, the son of David. But in that culture, 1,900 and 70 years, 1,900, I'm not good at math, 1,900 plus years ago, when Mark's readers would have heard the gospel, they would have not thought one of the first four books because they had not been written yet. This is what they would have thought. When they heard him say, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse three, when he says, uh, or verse two, when he says that, I'm, I'm sending a messenger before your face or a proclaimer before your face. And he says in verse three, the voice of one crying or proclaiming in the wilderness. And then verse four, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They would have known that the word gospel meant the announcement of a king. The word gospel most simply means Good news. It's used 77 times in the Old Testament, 77 times in the New Testament. And it is predominantly used for the idea of a king coming home victorious in battle. In a day and age where there was no CNN, there was no Fox News, there were no blogs, there was no internet, there was no radio. The only way to bring home news of a victory in battle is to send a messenger, a gospeler, an evangelist ahead to talk about the victory of the king, and he would gather up a crowd to come in and, and to greet the king who is coming in from victory. And there were two times in your life that a gospeler would come and announce victory when your king went to battle and won, and when your king went to battle and lost. If your king goes to battle and wins, the gospeler will come back and say, Good news, our, our king has been victorious, he has defended us, he has beat our uh, arch enemy, he has defeated our nemesis. I've got really good news, we have a great king. But if your king goes to battle and loses, the other king's gospeler will come to your city. And he will say, I've got really good news. Your king has been defeated. And that's really good news because the gods have decided that you will follow my king, who's better than your old king anyway, and your life is going to be better. It would be as if November, what is 11th, that the McCain supporters are in their ballroom fourth. Thank you, Josh. The McCain supporters are in their ballroom and the Obama supporters are in their ballroom and in walks a messenger to announce who has won the election. Let's say Obama wins. Obama's guy goes into the Obama camp and says, we were right. Obama is the man for this nation and he's going to introduce a rule and a reign and a dominion and a kingdom per se that is going to bring life abundant for us. And that same messenger actually probably a different messenger, but one on Obama's side will walk into McCain's room and say, I've got really good news for you people. You've been wasting your time following John McCain, but God has decided that Obama is the better man to lead this country, and so I've got good news. You too will enjoy life and prosperity under this new reign. If you're new to the gospel, the gospel is the story of Jesus being both of those for us. In the gospel, he has gone out and defeated our worst enemy in Satan. Satan. Later on in the text, we're gonna uncover what John the Baptist says. He says that Jesus is so mighty and he is so worthy, I'm not even allowed to bend down and touch his shoe. And then in Mark chapter three, Mark's gonna talk about how strong Jesus is to bind up the mighty one, talking about Satan, and to bind him up and to plunder his house and to take back you and I. So in the gospel announcement that that, that, that Mark is announcing here, It's the beginning of the good news of King Jesus. He's saying your worst enemy has been defeated and you have been defended. And at the same time, he is saying to us, I've got really good news. Your previous king was not worth following. And you were not going to find life following that king. But I've got good news. You can find life with King Jesus and he is coming to town. And you could join his ranks through simply confessing your sins Repenting, which is gonna mean to turn your mind and to turn around and go the other direction and find grace with him. And so that's what Mark's listeners would have heard when he says that this is is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. They would have heard he's announcing a king who's going to bring a kingdom of justice and truth and mercy and prosperity. That the king is coming and he's gonna establish a rule and reign that's going to be so amazing to live in. And he's gonna bring life to all of his subjects. So tonight, very quickly, We'll begin a sermon and we'll introduce a series about this king, his kingdom, and the life he gives us. So we'll do this. This king, who is he? We'll look at who he is. We'll look at who meets him where. And we'll look at how do you meet him? Who is he? Who meets him where? Which we'll talk a lot about diversity there. And then we'll talk about how do you meet him? Which we'll talk about um, uh, more in the line of competency. How do you get to meet him? So the first, who is the king? Let's keep reading in verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I was a young boy, 19 or 20, um, I'm just joking. When I was a young boy, I thought that Jesus' full name was Jesus Lloyd Christ. Because my name is Tedric Lloyd Sin. And so not knowing his middle name, I assumed his middle name was Lloyd. Like every great man. And... Um, <laughs> And that's because I, I didn't understand that Christ was not his last name. I didn't understand that Christ is a title. You know, we're tempted to think Christ is his last name or that Christ is synonymous with Jesus, but that's not the case. Jesus is his given name. In Matthew, the angel comes to Joseph and he says, listen, I don't want you to put Mary away. The child that's in her womb has come to her by the Holy Spirit. And this is the name I want you to give him, Jesus, which is a Greek variant of the Old Testament name for Joshua. Joshua the name Joshua means God saves. And then he goes on in Matthew 1 to say, I want you to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But not only that, Christ is the word for Messiah or anointed one. And so what Mark is saying here is he is saying this Jesus, this one, this baby, this God who took on flesh is the king of the universe. He's the anointed one. He is the king. And then he says, he is the son of God. He doesn't say he's a son of God, which happens in the Old Testament to talk about men who seek after God's face and who are particularly holy. And he doesn't say he's he's one of the sons of God to talk about angels. He says he's the very son of God. He's completely and utterly divine. And if you're new to the church, this might get a little confusing for you. But then Mark continues to go on and he talks about um, how Jesus and John the Baptist are a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that had two elements to it. You see this, this long quote in, in verses 2 and 3 Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Uh, Mark is quoting, um, actually, he's quoting Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah, but he's quoting Isaiah 40, which is this very famous Old Testament passage that all four of the Gospelers quote. And it's talking about that one day is going to come the quintessential prophet who is going to prepare the way or announce or proclaim the way. Of the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to come and bring life to his people. And then Isaiah 40 says that this Messiah is going to be the Lord himself, but it's going to be the Lord wearing sandals. It's going to be God in the flesh needing to wear shoes. And so Mark goes through great pains, not only in our text, but throughout his entire book, to prove that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. See, the Old Testament uh, Israelites thought for sure that this prophet that was going to prepare the way of the Lord was going to be Elijah. Because Isaiah is the most favorite prophetic book to the Old Testament saints. And Elijah was their most favorite prophet because he did not die, but in fact was taken up to be with the Lord. So they were convinced that someday soon, Elijah would show up on the scene and he would show up in the wilderness and he would proclaim the king who's going to establish his kingdom and through his kingdom is gonna be life. And so John, uh, Mark, excuse me, and Jesus actually says that John the Baptist is Elijah to come. And so, who is this king? This king is God Himself. This king is God Himself. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email from one of our uh, one of our very own who said that someone rather famous was in town, and that I had the opportunity to spend time with this rather famous someone. And um, and so, I didn't, I didn't have to look at my calendar. I didn't have to think about what I was going to do. I had the chance to meet with a New York Times bestseller. I'm gonna go and do that. It's sort of like last night in New Mexico. I've got no idea. I'm not into politics, but I I tuned into Fox News long enough to find out that in New Mexico, McCain held a rally and less than 1,000 people came. And Obama holds a rally and 25,000 people come. I have no idea who's gonna win, but that is humans wanting to go and see the next person that's gonna be in charge so that they might get to meet them. Inside you and I, we have this incredible desire that's being shown out right now in the elections to go and associate with a leader that can establish a rule and reign that can bring us life. That's why people are overly anxious. That's why people are overly hopeful. That's why this election causes so many not to sleep is because that ultimate desire and that ultimate hope can only be found in Jesus. That he is the one that can establish a kingdom in which you and I can find life. So if this is the king, who meets him where? And we're gonna talk about where first, and then we're gonna talk about who next. We're gonna talk about where in terms of two places in our passage, both wilderness and then the Jordan River. And we're gonna talk specifically about baptism there. And then we're gonna talk about who is meeting him there, both the religious and the irreligious. We're gonna talk about who gets to be with this king. So who meets him where first? Uh, Verse three, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. And then we hear these crazy details about John's life in verse six, that he's clothed with camel's hair. He wears a leather belt. He eats locusts and wild honey. This is the lifestyle of someone living in the wilderness. Now for you and I, for us to hear that he is in the wilderness, we tend to think of wilderness as forest. We tend to think of that place that is teeming with life but just hasn't been conquered yet. I think of Into the Wild by John Krakauer that if that young brat would have been a little smarter and paid more attention, (laughs) I'm just joking, He, he could have lived longer. But this is a bad translation for us in our context, but this would not have been misunderstood to those in the first century. The wilderness was the desert. It was an uninhabitable place where you either ate locust and wild honey or you did not make it. It was a place where civilization could not be built. It was a treacherous, dry, windy place. The word for wilderness in our text comes from the word aramos, which means arid. What's the irony here? Do you see this? He's saying, do you want to meet the king of the universe? Do you want to come and see him? Do you want to come and have him touch you? Do you want to come and, and greet him and cheer for him? He's going to come in the wilderness. What, what's the importance of this? Why is this so crucial? Think about our Old Testament reading so far in City Bible reading where has wilderness come up? Wilderness comes up every time that God is going to meet his people face-to-face. God's people do not meet him in the Old Testament face-to-face anywhere except the wilderness, in that place where they cannot have life if he doesn't provide it for them. Jacob wrestles with God face-to-face in the wilderness. Moses, not in Egypt, not in that place of incredible civilization, but when he is out in the wilderness tending sheep, meets God in the burning bush. The people of Israel don't meet him in Egypt. They don't meet him in the promised land face-to-face. They meet him at Sinai in the wilderness face-to-face. What's the importance of this? Why is John calling people away from their homes and away from their comforts, and away from their securities, and away from all those things they trust in to come out to the wilderness. Because you and I know, just like the believers in John's day, that God always shows up in the wilderness. Lose a job. Your portfolio diminished or decimated? Have you been rejected or betrayed? Are you at that place where if God does not show up, you can't possibly make it? That is exactly where God promises to show up. And that is his kind, severe mercy to take us to that wilderness place so that we might trust in him and nothing else. The wilderness is this place, if you're leaving from Jerusalem to go down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, you have to walk 20 miles through the most uninhabitable territory there is. But not just 20 miles, you've got to go 4,000 feet below the level of Jerusalem to get down to the basin of the Jordan River. It's treacherous, dangerous territory. And this is what, this is what John is doing. He's saying, I want you to come from what you are using to define life. And I want you to come to this place and find life. Think about Joshua 24. Remember when we were reading in city Bible reading and they're renewing their covenant vows and Joshua is reminding them of all the amazing things that God has done for them. And he's listing off. He brought you out of Egypt. He defended you from Egypt. You got to the Red Sea and you thought for sure that you're gonna be crushed, but no, God covered them with a cloud and he drew you through on dry ground. And when they went into the Red Sea, he decimated them there. And then he says with as much vigor and excitement, he says this in Joshua 24, seven, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Where do you meet God? Where do you meet the king? Where do you meet the one who will bring you life? You meet him in the wilderness. In that place where you have to look at whatever the foundation of your life has been. And you've got to say, this thing that I'm trying to build life upon, this idea that I'm trying to build life upon, this relationship I'm trying to build life upon, this good work I'm trying to build life upon, this is not cutting it for me. And I'm going to leave it behind in order to go and encounter the king. So the first place where God meets his people is in the wilderness. I would say this, if you want to be a mature believer, create wilderness experiences for yourself. Think about this. Fasting creating a wilderness experience so that you might meet face-to-face with God. He might confront your idolatry. He might forgive you and cleanse you and change you and give you incredible peace. Giving your money so sacrificially that you create a wilderness experience for yourself. That God might meet you. He might challenge your idolatry. He might forgive you and cleanse you and give you incredible joy. This is actually what growing in character looks like. It's agreeing with God that a wilderness place is a good place for me to be so I can be completely and utterly dependent upon you and trust only in you in an uninhabitable place that if you don't show up for 40 years and give me daily water out of a rock and daily bread out of heaven, I am not going to make it. So he meets his people in the wilderness. The second place he meets his people is in the Jordan. Do you see this? First it says in verse 4 that John is baptizing in the wilderness, which is a conundrum because there's no water there. How could he possibly be baptizing where there's no water? And then later it says he's baptizing in the river Jordan, verse 5. Baptism is a huge part of this text, and I, I don't want you to get lost in, you know, what kind of baptism, who's being baptized Whose theology is correct? What's actually going on there? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? We're gonna talk about some of that next week when we talk about Jesus' baptism. I just wanna draw out one main point. It's the redundant point that that Mark is making over and over. Look with me in verse four. John is baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and faith. Um, Verse five, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him. And then in verse eight, I have baptized you with water, but he, talking about Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or he will plunge you and immerse you into himself. Why is this so unique? Why is is John being so redundant? Baptism doesn't come up in the Old Testament. The word baptize is a Greek word. It doesn't show up in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament has... Has ideas that point to this. There are ritualistic cleansing and there are washings and there are sprinklings and there's the throwing of of liquids to symbolize the need for cleansing. You remember in Exodus 19, the people were gonna be face-to-face with God in the desert? What do they do first? They wash themselves and they wash all of their clothes so that they might go symbolically clean to meet with a holy God. And whenever they went to the temple to worship, they symbolically and ceremonially washed their hands, symbolizing, I must be clean to meet with God. And when a Gentile wanted to come and worship in the temple and and to become a Jew through circumcision, not only did they wash their hands, but they had to be completely immersed in water and wash themselves with water. The ancient Near East, all the world religions of John's day taught some sort of immersion or ablution or infusion, some sort of ritualistic cleansing. But this is what is radically new. No world religion, including the Old Testament Jewish faith, had someone beside yourself baptize you. Up until this point, you were always baptizing yourself. Up until this point, you were always cleansing yourself. Up until this point, you were self-baptizing And this is the importance of baptism in our text. And this is the reason John's being so redundant is he's saying in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've got to come to the place where you realize that someone outside of you has to wash you in order for you to be clean. I mean, think about the symbolism of this. I'm going to leave. It says, now we're getting into who? It says all of them in Judea and all of them in Jerusalem. I mean, clearly it's hyperbole. Not everyone is being baptized by John. I tend to think a lot of people were going out there though. In fact, John the Baptist is so famous that Josephus, a first century historian, talks more about him than he does Jesus. That he had that kind of influence in the first century. By the way, Josephus was a Jew, it might might be a reason he talked about John Moore. But the point is this, multiple historians in that day and age talk about John and the incredible impact he has. And all of these people, if you live in Judea, you live in a, in a land of unbelievable prosperity. You live in a land that's incredibly green and, and it's just booming with life. It's a botanical uh, masterpiece. And you leave that behind to walk treacherous roads, symbolizing repentance, symbolizing moving away from establishing life on things. And you move down into the Jordan River and have someone outside of you cleanse you. And think about the people leaving Jerusalem. Jerusalem for Mark is going to be that place where the temple is, where the Pharisees are, where man-made religion is, where is the place where you try and wash yourself clean through your own doings. The people are leaving Jerusalem and going through a treacherous path into a wilderness where, if God doesn't show up, they're done, and someone outside of them is baptizing them. So that is who. Uh, think about it this way: um, I've been I've been really praying a lot recently, and I've been praying more publicly. This uh, this Wednesday night would be an example. Um, We we were there and we were working through the multiplication of the Salzman and Carter group, and uh, we we broke up into small groups to pray together to ask for God to lead us in this, for us not to be willful in this, for Him to provide for this. You know, we got what I feel like is two preemie babies out there on life support that we need God to sustain. This big group, this big boisterous group of sixteen down to two groups of eight, and I prayed there. um, I prayed there with Derek and Charlie. I prayed that God would provide begin to provide City Church. And I'd like to ask you to to join in me in praying this. If you're going to support this church and it's worship and work to the best of your ability, remember support. The main thing I want is your prayer. The primary point is prayer. I've been praying that God would provide us with mature couples who have been in the church for a long time. And I've begun to pray that he would also provide us with brand new believers who have not been in the church. And that mature couples, hopefully with kids, that come into this place might come into this place not because they've been doing good, but they're learning to repent for doing good. They're learning to repent for trying to build their life on their good deeds. And at the same time, I'm asking God to bring folks to us who have been living in rebellion, who've been living in debauchery, who have been living and trying to build a life off the world's ideals. And I'm asking God to bring us together that we might become his body here, repenting for trying to earn his love and repenting from rebelling from him and running from his love and finding hope in Christ. I was talking to a friend who's a church planter in another city, and he was telling me that an incredible story. I love to be with church planters because we try and tell stories to encourage ourselves to stay in the fight. And he was telling me the story um, of, a, of, a, of two women who came to, who were recently converted um, in, in a rather wealthy neighborhood in California. And uh, one woman um, was a nice homemaker um, uh, of a partner in a law firm. And she had been going to church her entire life, including this church plant. Had recently discovered, like the folks in Jerusalem, I'm trying to build my life on doing good things. And I'm trying to perform. And I'm trying to make God love me. And I'm trying to do the right thing. And her next door neighbor, she found out, unbeknownst to her, was a really expensive woman of the night. And this really expensive woman of the night was building her life off of money and power and control and jewelry and things. And the two, the the really nice churchgoer began to witness to her and began to uncover what was really going on in her life that she wasn't just a woman living next door to her. And she began to figure out her story And the really religious lady began to realize that she needed Jesus as much as her neighbor did. And for the first time, truly walked through the wilderness into the Jordan and asked Jesus to cleanse her. And that won her neighbor's heart when she began to realize that trying to earn God's favor through deeds is just as broken as running from God and his control. And I've been asking God if he would do us the favor of bringing us people who have been in the church, who are learning to repent, of relying on their deeds, and bringing us people in the world and bring us all together here in this place, united in Christ. I have an older brother named Tommy who spent most of his youth trying to build a life off doing wrong things, blatantly and rebelliously so. And I've got a sister, Tina, who spent most of her youth trying to build a life off doing the right things, And because my parents both worked and they both had lots of influence in my life as the youngest, babysitting me for hours on end, I'm a bipolar hypocrite, (laughs) able to swing from drastic rebellion into righteous living in order to earn God's favor. If you're new to the church, you may, be, you may be understanding for the first time, I've been running from the face of God. I've been trying to build a life apart from him and all that I'm building my life on is crumbling and it's not making any sense. And he's creating a wilderness for me and I don't really get it. And your temptation might be to come to church, maybe throw some bucks in the plate, maybe go to one of these crazy groups and begin to do the right things. And that is a self-baptism and not a baptism from Jesus. And in my life now, I can see me swinging from rebellion to religion. All the while, Jesus is in the middle saying, you need to come to me that I might cleanse you and make you new. So that's who the king is. He's God himself in the flesh of Jesus. And that's who meets him where the religious and the irreligious walk through the wilderness in order to have life depending completely and wholly upon him. So the question is, how do you meet him? The question we'll close with is how do you meet him? Three times in verses two and three, it talks about the way or the path of the Lord. It says, prepare your way. It talks about make way, um, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Again, if we'd go back to our original audience, when the gospeler comes to town and says, I've got really good news for you. There's a new king in town establishing a new kingdom and there's life in it for you. And if it's the king of your enemy who sends his gospeler to come tell you that news, the next thing he's gonna tell you to do is come out and make him a straight path so he can come to your city. Come out and make his way straight. If there's a boulder, we're gonna move it because this king doesn't go around boulders. And if there's a valley, we're gonna fill it in because this king doesn't go down and up anything. He goes straight across. And so when the original audience heard this idea of come make a way, come come make a path, they would have instantly heard oppression. They would have instantly heard slavery. They would have instantly heard works. But after this point, any time that Mark uses the word way or hodos in the Greek for Jesus, he's always talking about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's talking about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, more specifically on his way to the cross that the gospel is this grand story of he's not a king that says, I'm so worthy, come make a path and a way for me to get to you. He says, I'm going to make a path and I'm going to make a way for me to you. That the one who John says, he's so amazing and worthy and strong, I'm not even able to bend down and touch his shoe. That this one will take the shoes off of his disciples and wash their feet that the God of unbelievable resources, unlimited resources is going to die on a cross, homeless and naked for you and me. What Mark is going to unpack for us in the coming 15 and a half chapters is that we do not make our way to him, that he makes his way to us by living a perfect life for us and then dying for us and being raised. And this is what he means when he says he's on the way. He's on the way to the cross because this king sits on his throne after he dies on the cross. So that's how God comes to us. How do we come to him? Look back to our text. John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and both the religious and the irreligious are coming to him, being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing, their sins. That the announcement of a relationship between us and Jesus is not going to be built on our works, on our backs, on our slavery. It's going to be built on his back, on his slavery, if you will, on his death. And the way that you and I will enter into that is through repentance, which is this idea of I'm changing my mind. I'm no longer going to try and build a life off of doing evil or doing good, I'm gonna build my life on Jesus. That's what repentance means. Part of that is the confession of sins. Confessing sins is saying the chief sin is trying to find life apart from God. And so that's what we'll unpack in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And um, Jesus, I'm so thankful that you give us yourself. I'm so thankful that you're the gospel. I'm so thankful that you're the good news. Uh, I pray that you give us hearts that love you. I pray that you give us minds to understand this. Give us your Holy Spirit. Baptize us, plunge us, immerse us in your Holy Spirit that we might understand these things and live out of your gospel. In your name we pray, amen.